was a uh, preacher in the 19th century, and there's a kind of a famous story that goes with him, um, and it goes something like this. Um, he was at his house, and he was very well known in the Chicago area, and there was a prominent Chicago citizen that was visiting his house um, who had been a part of his church, um, and he hadn't seen him in a while, and so he was talking to him. He said, hey, I know your schedule's busy and everything like this. Um, where are you uh, as far as the church goes? And this prominent Chicago figure says, you know, uh, DL, that uh, um, every time I go to the church, basically, everyone, all they want to do is talk to me about Chicago business and things like this. And I've kind of uh, got to a spot where, man, I know the stories of the scriptures. Like, I went to Sunday school class. I went to all these things. I, I know what they are. I don't know that I necessarily really need to go to the church in order for me to understand and learn about these spiritual things or even uh, moral things. I can be a good person without being plugged in uh, to the congregation. And Moody just uh, was taking it in and he was listening to him and he was just kind of nodding his head a little bit. Now, they were in Chicago, um, and Chicago, it's cold even in the summer. And so they were, uh, they were actually outside in the winter, uh, standing next to this hearth that he had outside his house. And he walked up to where they had the fire going and uh, he took the necessary tools he had, pulled out one of the coals from the fire, and he just set it in a small pile of snow that was out by, uh, just outside his door. And both of them just stood there, and they watched this coal just burn out in the snow. And this man turned to DL, and he didn't say anything except for he just shook his head and said, I see. You know, I, I know that there's a lot of people, I, I've met a lot of people that have left the church uh, for what they perceive as very good reasons. Some of them have been injured by the church. Some of them have had experiences with church leadership that has not been healthy in the least. Some of us in here have been injured by uh, some congregation or another. But I got to tell you, the two biggest reasons why I hear that people don't want to stay connected to the church, um, the first one is um, because when I go to church, it's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. And uh, I kind of get that because uh, I am one of them uh, a lot of times. Um, you are one of them a lot of times. But I don't understand the reasoning that we leave the church because that church has hypocritical people uh, in it. I, I kind of feel like that that's a reason that we look for so that we don't have to go anymore. Um, I know every time I go into the store, somewhere in the store, there's a hypocrite. And it hasn't prevented me from going and shopping in that store. Um, my kids still go to school. Um, and I know that those schools, a lot of times there's people that they run into that aren't exactly who they think or who they portray themselves to be. You still go to work. Um, and you can't tell me that there aren't people who have uh, just some moral issues at the place that you work at. So I don't buy the hypocritical excuse um, I get it. We need to be paying attention. I'm not making an excuse for being a hypocrite. I'm saying I think that's a reason we look for for not being connected with the church. The other thing I, I hear all the time, which is funny to hear, is, man, church is boring. Like, who wants to go and listen to some guy talk about some book that was written thousands of years ago, and he goes on and on and on about these old stories that I'm not even sure I buy into that. And all he's trying to do is convince me to be a good guy or to be a good gal. Man, it's just boring. But man, we put up with a lot of boring things too, don't we? Um, and I would suggest that, man, being part of the church isn't about being entertained anyway. You ought to be connected to Jesus. This is what the church is about to begin with. And I have yet to have a boring moment with Jesus. 
I've had a boring moment with some of you. You've had a boring moment with me. But I have never had a boring moment with Jesus. And this is where it is. Now, Pastor Mark Mitchell says that uh, possibly one of the reasons we run into that is because of the language that we use concerning the church. He says our language indicates a misunderstanding of the nature of the church. He, talks, he says that we talk about going to church in the same way that we talk about going to the store or going to the game or going to the movie. The church, he says, is a place that we end up visiting. We get an experience, we leave, and then we go and say that we're going to live in the real world the rest of our time. And we totally miss out on the understanding of what the church is. Because the church is the reality of being for the believer. And this is why we have been in this anchor series for the last couple of weeks. We have said, man, okay, what does it mean to be the people of God? Not just go and, and have an experience. And not just attend something so that we can get kind of filled up a little bit. But what does it mean to be the people of God? And so we were convinced that the early church found themselves anchored in Jesus. And that's why Andy started this series out that way. He said, man, when I look at the early church, the first thing they talked about is who this Jesus guy is. And so we are anchored in Jesus. Now, we all know that an anchor is a nautical tool. It's designed to keep a ship steady, even in rocky waters. But the anchor was not always part of a boat or part of a ship. Um, now, I don't know who invented the anchor, who, who came up with the idea of the anchor, but I do know that the earliest literature we have comes from the Greeks concerning the anchor. Um, they, there's, we have really, really early literature that talks about the Greek warfare in the waters, and what would happen is these boats would be cruising right at each other, and, to, and then they would try to avoid each other so that they don't all go down with the ship, and they would, they would kind of turn the other way, and as they were passing each other, that's when they would try to lobby all of their weapons and all of their artillery at each other and hoping to hit each other. And then they would kind of big this, do this big U-turn and try to do it again. And it wasn't an efficient way to fight these battles. And so early Greek literature shows that there were captains of these ships saying, all right, how can we have an advantage with this? And the captain would yell at his oarsmen, and he would say, bite, bite, bite. And that meant for the people that were working the oars to put their oars down as far as they can to try to slow the ship down. Until somebody said, hey, I've got a big giant rock right here, and this guy has a rope over here. Let's do something with this. And so they put the two together. They threw this rock down, and it would catch something on the, on the ocean floor or on the sea floor. And their ship was able to stay in one place. And as this other ship is going by trying to line up everything, they were able to have a fixed place with which to fight from. And so they called these early anchors teeth because they were biting down and being able to steady something that was being uh, knocked around by weapons, by the sea, by the weather, and all these things like this. Well, eventually, the early Christians adopted the anchor as a symbol of hope, um, as this thing, this idea developed. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19 says this, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The anchor became an imperative uh, symbol for the early church. 
that we hung on to this. And part of the other draw to the anchor is that uh, these teeth became so important in our ships in, the, in these rocky places that crews were beginning to be identified by the type of anchor or the design of the anchor that was on their ship. You knew who belonged to what boat because of that anchor, and they would often wear that image either on their clothing or they would have it drawn or tattooed somewhere on their body. And so we looked at this and we said, all right, if Jesus is our anchor, how are we identified then with our allegiance to him? How is it that we can uh, be recognized as a crewman of Jesus's ship, of Jesus's boat? And so we went straight to the early church and we looked at the first thing that they did. And in Acts 2.42, we're told that that early church being anchored in Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And so we've talked about the apostles' teaching. Andy talked about the importance of God's word and being connected to that, not just to God's word, but collectively to God's word. Last week at South Rock One, we got to talk about the importance of community and why that fellowship is not just a hobby or just something if we have time to, but it is essential in being anchored in Jesus. And we keep on down the line this morning and we talk about the breaking of bread. And that breaking of bread has a lot of different names. We call it communion here at South Rock Christian Church. Some of you grew up in a place that, or in a denomination that would call it the Eucharist, or we would call it the elements. But this idea of breaking the bread um, keeps us on this tour of what it means to be anchored to Jesus as we've explored these things. And I like the idea of being on tour. And so I'm going to borrow that idea as we go through the rest of our, our message this morning. We're going to take a tour of the meaningful event of communion, why it's so important that we practice that and we celebrate that and we participate in that. But like any good tour, you've got to start with an initial presentation. You've got to understand the context of what it is that you're going to be touring. Have you ever been on a guided tour? I had a buddy that went, uh, he, he and his family went on a tour years ago of Alcatraz, and he was telling me about how they went through this tour. Um, they got on the island, and the first thing they did, now this was years ago, they gave him uh, like a Walkman with headphones, okay? And you were supposed to follow the guide on the tape that they gave you, and they would guide you to different places. And the, way, the reason why they did that is because different tapes had you start at different places, and it kept everyone from kind of clumping up together. But he talked about putting on these headphones and the recording taking you step by step through the infamous prison. And as the tour goes, the recording beckons you to stop at certain places, and it tells you of significant events that took, uh, that happened at that particular place. Sometimes they would stop at cells uh, of people, and you would hear a bunch of information of people that would try to escape that were in that cell. He said occasionally you would stop at uh, specific places uh, in the prison, and you would start hearing the voices of former prisoners who then uh, made that recording too, and they would tell you of significant, significant events that went on right there. The idea is that they're to bring the reality uh, to the contemporary experience without you having to actually commit a felony uh, to be at that prison. Um, and so they would walk you through that. But it started with an initial presentation. Every tour starts with an initial presentation. The Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., they start you out in the elevator uh, going into the room where, where they show uh, the things of that museum, giving you the initial information, the context of what it is that you're about to see. 
If you were to go to the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte, North Carolina, you would start outside in front of an animatronic cow that resembles the dairy farm that Graham was raised on so that you understand kind of the agricultural background that Graham came from. Those of you that have visited the salt mines in Hutchison, you jump on an elevator that takes you 650 feet down in 90 seconds, and as you're going down, they're telling you what it is that you're about to walk into, what it is, how the air is a little bit different, what it is that you need to pay attention to, why this music, this, uh, uh, the salt mines even exist to begin with, and here's a map of what it is that you're going to walk through. Well, today, we're gonna, I want to give you an initial presentation of the, com of the communion event as we tour through this, and we're starting in Matthew chapter 26. And if we were to do this, if we were to tour this first event, if we had the headphones on and listening in, the first place we would stop is the palace of the high priest, and we would listen to the Jewish leaders discuss how they are going to go about arresting Jesus. We are tired of this guy. We're tired of the things he's saying right now. And we would hear them whispering and scheming and saying, we got to take care of this man right now. And not, not, not only that, we need to do it quickly because Passover is coming. And if we do this during Passover, it's going to cause this big uproar with our people. See, Passover was the big, big festival for the Jewish people. But if we stayed in that room and we kept listening throughout this chapter, and we started listening to what they're saying, all of a sudden we would hear another voice. And we're going, where's that guy coming from? Who's talking now? And here's this voice that we would hear if we were touring the event of the, of the Passover, the, the event of the communion. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So we have all these voices, all this kind of, we are ready to arrest Jesus. This is the context in which we are going to hear about this first Lord's Supper, this first last supper. Um, this is what we're going to hear. And so this is our context with this. And so with this information, the real part of the tour begins. And so we're in the city of Jerusalem. And communion tour starts in Jerusalem because we are about to celebrate the Feast of Passover here. We're still a few days out. And so we have our first stop. We're standing outside the city, and we're listening in on Jesus and those that are following him. And we listen to how uh, this, I, this meal is now going to identify who this betrayer is. Listen to what Matthew 26 says, starting in verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, He says, I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, as we have this part of our tour, there's really nothing out of the ordinary going on for our disciples. It's Passover time. Everybody in Jerusalem is getting ready and preparing for Passover. They just didn't know the plan. Jesus, what do we do? 
What are we going to do here? Where should we go to prepare for a meal? And Jesus says, go ahead, go ahead of me, go into the city and find a certain man. Well, which man are we looking for? The certain one. Go find him. Now, we know which certain man this is. Actually, if we were to read this account in Mark's gospel, he says that the man is the one that's carrying the bucket of water the, uh, or, or the bowl of the water up, up on his head. Now, to us, that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. But back in that day, men didn't carry uh, the water on their head. That's how women would carry the water. And most of the time, it's because the water would be too heavy to carry like this, and so they would put it on their head. If men, were, uh, men didn't do that, if it was too heavy, they usually carried it like this in bigger buckets, or they would uh, think that they were strong enough to do this. If it was too heavy for them, they would hand it to the women so that they could carry it on their head. Actually, I don't know if that's true, but it makes sense in my head that they would do that. Um, but they would do this. And so for the disciples looking for this certain man, he would be easily identifiable because he's carrying the water like a woman would carry the water. And they're to go to him and say, hey, Jesus says that we're going to have this Passover meal at your house. And the man leads them up into a large upper room. Now, the meal is happening. Everything's going like it's normally supposed to happen. Um, if we were in this tour, we'd be sitting, uh, standing in the corner of the room watching this meal happen. These guys are sitting at the table. They're even reclining. The meal has begun to take place. The Passover cedar is going. Then Jesus interrupts the festivities. He's already made the announcement that Passover is going to initiate the crucifixion. He told us this back in chapter, or verses 1 and 2 in chapter 26. He's actually announced this message that the Son of Man is going to suffer several times ever since Peter's great confession. Lee Eklov, as, as this announcement's being made by Jesus here in this room, as, he, as Jesus interviews, uh, uh, as he makes this announcement in the middle of this um, uh, meal, Eli Eklov gives us a, a great um, kind of observation. He says, you know, to the disciples, Jesus' talk of the cross was horrible. It was intrusive, and it was looming. They hoped it would just go away, that things would just work out. There's a novel uh, called Joshua. And this, in this novel, Joshua, um, Joshua is the key figure, but it is in the novel, he's Jesus incognito. He shows up to this town, um, and he takes on the name Joshua. And the whole novel is about how Jesus, or Joshua, changes everybody's life in this town because of the example that he lives with them. And it's such, it really is kind of an inspiring book, um, but I think there's something just off. I feel, when you read it, you sit there and go, man, this just doesn't go far enough. Because Jesus doesn't just change people's lives because of the example he gave us. He has transformed our lives because of the death that he gave us. And that's what that novel misses. This is what our disciples are missing right here. I wonder if some of us miss it too. Jesus didn't show up just to make us a better person. His crucifixion is intrusive to our sinful natures. It's not a feel-good story. The Lord's Supper is intrusive, and it highlights that which needs to die. Not only that, but it is at the table that Jesus announces to them that, hey, not only am I going to die, but one of you is going to betray me. And one by one, we would hear on the recording, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And Jesus says, it's the one that put his hand in the bowl with mine. And all eyes then, you can even hear them moving in their seats, staring at Judas, who says, is it me, Rabbi? And Jesus said, you said it. And we would hear that on our tour. 
Have you ever been in a situation that you thought the timing wasn't right? Like you thought you were there too early or something came up way too late, an opportunity came way too late? Well, communion reminds us that God is never early or never late. When breaking bread and fellowship, we are reminded of God's perfect purpose. It's not just a simple thing to get through while we wait for our announcements. It's not something that we have to just kind of suck it up for a couple of minutes so that we can get out here and get to lunch. But it is a reminder of our sin and its betrayal of the blessing of God's perfect presence. Communion draws us in then to worship, not to be strictly in silence counting the seconds for it to be done. This is part of our vertical aspect of communion, of the Lord's Supper. We are reminded that we are connected not just to God, but we are connected to a Savior that dies and suffers on our behalf. But our tour continues from there. Because in the midst of this awkward announcement that Jesus makes, he goes on to say that what I'm doing right now is initiating the new covenant. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 26, uh, continuing on in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many of the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." And at this point, the disciples don't get it yet, but they are a part of history. They're a part of history. As we're on this tour, we're in the room, there's a weight that impacts the entire environment of the Passover feast because Jesus makes this awkward announcement. For the disciples, it should be a time that they remember Israel's deliverance from the bondage in Egypt as recorded in Exodus. Yet Jesus uses it as a time to point out that someone's going to betray him. And as that revelation impacts the room, Jesus continues the meal and institutes what's now known as the Lord's Supper. He takes the unleavened bread. Jesus offers a straightened explanation of anything we have in Scripture of this. He breaks it, hands it a piece to each person that's at the table, and he says, eat this. Um, and every time you do, remember that my body is going to be broken. And it's the only time that the Lord's Supper ever speaks about a future event. Every other time that this, that this meal has taken place, we talk about an event that's already happened. And each person gets that piece, and he instructs them to eat. Then he takes the cup, and at a traditional Passover Seder, there's actually four cups that are drank. And it's, uh, it comes from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and, uh, six and 7, and it's all about this, this uh, reminder of what happened at the Exodus event. And each cup represents a different part, part of this. Most scholars believe that it's the third cup that Jesus takes right here, and it's the cup of redemption. It's about this promise that God says that I will redeem my people. Now, Jesus, for him, this wine represents the body, which now ratifies this new covenant. And what an amazing thing as we're listening in on this tour. We get to witness history as it's happening and listening to it. Have you ever experienced one of God's promises of faithfulness? Like in the moment, right there, God shows how faithful he is in his, in his promises. And you sit there and you're just in awe of what just happened. All of history just changed. God revealed himself right now. I have ushered in the things that were written in the Old Testament, and now we are living in the new. But the new covenant right there is birthed in this upper room. 
But you see, covenants are sealed with the blood of a sacrifice. So we're still speaking of a future event that's supposed to happen. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. What Jesus does is usher in what Jeremiah has said in Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to these words. This is the history that they are living out. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand uh, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, but my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's happening right now. In this room, they are experiencing this. And Jesus instates the Lord's Supper from the Passover celebration. The two are intricately connected. And forever they are bonded. But there's a horizontal element to this too. From the least to the greatest, all of us have the same stature when we come to the Lord's table. When we take this communion, there is nobody that has higher honor and nobody that has lesser honor when we are right there. It's to be experienced in community. Much of what Andy said last week lends itself to this. Our community, part of our community experience is communion. And we are all the same status at the Lord's Supper. It's the perfect picture of the perfect Lamb of God accomplishing the perfect atonement for his people's sin on the cross where the perfect sacrifice was made once and for all. And just as the Passover ceremony was designed to remind people of God's word and promise, the Lord's Supper is a ceremony to remind people of Jesus' work on the cross. We proclaim his good news every time we participate in communion. Now, I don't know about you, but I am in awe every time we do communion when I stop and I just think about the bigger picture that's going on. When I'm taking communion, there are millions around the world that are doing it at that same time. And if we all do it on Sunday, that means for 24 straight hours, we are in community with the greater group of God's people. That's amazing. That's amazing. And what an experience we get to have Because in this single moment, Jesus brings Jeremiah's prophecy into play. And we get to witness that every time we take this cup. I often wonder what it would have been like to be in the upper room in real time. First, to hear Jesus say that someone will betray him, and then to institute the new covenant sealed by his blood. We see that Jesus goes to the cross exactly as, as it has been written about him, and that God replaces one ceremony with another to remind us of Jesus' sacrifice on that cross. If we were to continue this tour, we would ultimately arrive at our passage in Acts as the church is born. This is the reason why they call it the breaking of bread. In community, we collectively confess that Jesus is the Messiah who died on the cross and rose three days later. Paul told the Corinthians, every time you take these elements, you profess Jesus on the cross. Now, the death of Jesus was not an unfortunate event in history. It was necessary for redemption. To show the importance of this historical event, God instituted this ceremony designed to remember the sacrifice of Christ for our sin and for our forgiveness. So we're going to do exactly that this morning. 
Hopefully you were able to grab your, your communion on the way in. Um, if not, just raise your hand. We got some guys that are ready to pass it out. But I've got a confession that I'm going to make to you right here. This might get me in trouble a little bit. I'm going to confess it to you anyway. These elements are not my favorite elements to take for communion. I heard a preacher say uh, not long ago that he says, I think it's weird that in the name of health and safety, we've taken styrofoam discs and shoved them in our stomachs. And I kind of line up with that, okay? However, as I tell you this, the reason why I'm confessing this is not just to get myself in trouble by saying it out loud, but I'm saying this because communion is not about me. And it's not about you. As we have toured this event right here, None of them complained or argued or talked about the elements that were used as Jesus instituted this supper. Every time we take this, we are not professing me. We are professing Jesus on the cross. The elements don't matter. When I was in college, I was with a group of guys and we were talking about some stuff that all led us into worship. And we were sitting there going, man, we need to take communion right now. And believe it or not, a bunch of guys in the dorm, uh, we don't have styrofoam and juice or crackers or even wine. And if we did have wine, none of us would confess to that anyway because we'd get in trouble. Um, all we had was Twinkies and Dr. Pepper. And so we took communion with Twinkies and Dr. Pepper because that's what we had. The elements don't matter. It's what they represent. And so we're going to take that and we're going to do what they did in that first upper room. As when we take these elements, we are recognizing Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's not about me. And so go ahead and take the bread. Go ahead and take that out. And as we do this, we hear Jesus' words. He says, take this bread, eat it. This is my body. So we take it and we remember his body that was broken on behalf of you and I. And it was done on that cross. And go ahead and take the juice, and we're going to drink it. And as we do, we remember Jesus' words. He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And recognize as we have taken this bread, and as we have taken this drink, and we have participated in a communion collectively that we have just as one body professed that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, I don't know about you, but at that table, I often feel like I'm the Judas sitting there, that there's something in me that has betrayed Jesus. But the new covenant says that he has forgiven the iniquity of everyone from the least to the greatest. And you and I fit on that scale somewhere. See, the important part of this whole experience is the cross. So as we take that bread and as we take that drink, we are recognizing that Jesus died for you and I. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we do this not because it's a part of our service every single week, not it's because something we want to blast through, not it's because we have whatever elements it is, but Lord, we do this because we recognize the truth that you, on your own initiative, died on the cross for our sin, for our iniquity, for our betrayal. 
And so, Lord, that every single week we have an opportunity to collectively come to the same place, and that's at the foot of the cross. And we recognize the, the, the necessity um, that we have to be forgiven by you in order that, Lord, we might live the life that you have authored for us. God, I know personally I get distracted almost every single week when it comes to communion, just thinking about different things that, that move me away from the cross. God, would you help us to not be trite about our experience that we have in breaking of the bread? That, Lord, that we would uh, understand what a privilege and blessing it is that you have given us uh, to have that blank slate, to have that start over, uh, to have that forgiveness that, Lord, we can't find anywhere else. Lord, thank you for meeting a need that some of us don't even recognize we have. Um, Lord, may we find our forgiveness and our redemption in your will and in your presence. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.